0: So your name is Nathaniel. You know, I think there's another Nathaniel in Sung's life also. So uh, you might be second place, Nathaniel. Now, uh, but uh, it, I really appreciated your playing. I hope everybody else did here. Um, it's just it's so wonderful to sing these tremendous hymns on Easter Sunday, and fantastic to have somebody to play the piano so beautifully. Anyway, so thank you, Nathaniel. And yes, I haven't forgotten that other Nathaniel, born February twenty-sixth, I think a year ago, right, uh, Sung? Yes, there we go. You know, you try to stay in good with people, and uh, if you remember their uh, birthdays and that sort of thing, that helps a little bit. Well, uh, you know, of course, uh, spring I think is a wonderful time of year. If you're a sports fan, you have the culmination of the professional basketball, and I was going to say in hockey seasons, though they continue on and on and on, even to the summer sometimes, but especially for me, the opening of Major League Baseball, where fans of virtually every team can dream that they'll win the World Series this year, or in the case of my Baltimore Orioles, have a better record than last year. Yes. And nature, of course, is beginning to abound in wondrous uh, color as the harsh winter weather gives uh, way to warmer temperatures and the beautiful uh, cherry blossoms and uh, blooming flowers all over the place. For some people, Easter is simply a celebration of spring and many of these things we've just mentioned, plus a proliferation of chocolate bunnies or eggs or some other types of candy. And I'm certainly not against candy. But for the Christian, Easter means one thing, with everything else secondary in importance. Easter is the day that we celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. What I like so much about Easter is that it forces us to confront directly the issue of who Jesus really is. In a, I'm going to say a recent book, but then maybe Sung, Pastor Sung or somebody else is going to ask me when it was published. It's almost 10 years ago. In my mind, that's a recent book. It's like a bestseller. It's called The Jesus Survey, What Christian Teens Really Believe and Why. The author, Mike Nappa, interviewed nearly a thousand teens across the country who called themselves Christians and he found that only 34% strongly believed that Jesus was God. 55% weren't sure. When asked whether Jesus rose from the dead physically after his crucifixion, only 60% agreed, with the other 40% either unsure or disagreeing. Well, maybe you're here this morning, And you, like some of the teens who took this survey, are not quite sure what to do with Jesus. Maybe you think that Jesus was a good man, but you're not quite sure about all the rest. But Easter forces us to confront the main questions about him. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead as he said he would, or is it just a nice story that makes us feel better? And if he did rise from the dead, what difference does it make? Well, those are the questions I want us to to look at this morning, and I believe that they're two of the most important questions you'll ever encounter as you go through life. First of all, did the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happen? Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Amen. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact, not simply a nice story. I like that. I'm just going to sit down, maybe go to the second point and then sit down. Uh, but no, that's exactly right. But just in case you're not 100 percent convinced or you need some refreshing, consider the following five pieces of evidence. First, we know that the tomb was sealed and guarded. The tomb was sealed and guarded. Matthew 27, 62 to 64, reports that the chief priests and the Pharisees knew that Jesus said that he'd rise again after three days. So they were worried that the disciples might come and steal Jesus' body from the tomb. Says the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest its disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard end of Matthew 27:64. The tomb was made secure by the stone, a special seal and a guard of Roman soldiers. Mark 16.2 tells us the stone was so large that the three women who came to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday to anoint Jesus' body wondered who would roll away the stone for them. So it was impossible for anyone to get into the tomb to steal Jesus' body, and it was impossible for Jesus to get out since, of course, he was clearly dead. And even if somehow he weren't totally dead, how could he have removed the stone? Matthew 28, uh, verse 2 tells us that it was an angel of the Lord who descended from heaven and rolled back the stone. When the guards told the chief priests what had happened, the chief priests bribed the soldiers to say that Jesus' disciples came at night and stole the body, Matthew 28, 11 to 15. But as we've already explained, this was impossible for them to have done. And no one ever presented jesus body in order to discredit the resurrection. Second, the gospels contain four slightly different accounts of the resurrection, and you know this if you 've done what I have done and i 've done it several times and done it slight with slight differences I found out uh, and try to have a harmony of all of the events on resurrection. Resurrection Day. The Gospels contain four slightly different accounts of the Resurrection. Some of the details at first might even seem to contradict one another. For instance, some accounts mention one angel, others mention two. But all of these details can be resolved, and the fact that there are minor differences only shows that these were eyewitness accounts and not made up. If the gospel was simply a fraud, why wouldn't those who made up the story be careful not to have any apparent contradictions in their story, such as what we have in these accounts? In other words, if the stories were made up by the disciples, they would be exactly the same in all the details. But they aren't. They are eyewitness accounts, and and they are accurate in their details. You know, it's just as uh, when my wife and I go to an an event and we both maybe report on it to somebody else at the dinner table. Well, it's accurate, but from two different perspectives. Or uh, also, we take pictures of the same scene. But guess what? The pictures are different because we have different perspectives. It's the same thing. By the way, a book by Frank Morrison entitled, Who Moved the Stone?, Now, this is not a recent book. This is 1930, so that's a little earlier um, for most of us, Uh, but it's a great book. It points out how Morrison initially tried to show that the gospel accounts of the resurrection were made up. He was not a believer, uh, but he ended up believing that they were true, that they were eyewitness accounts, genuine, with no evidence of being made up. And by the way, right now it's available for 99 cents on Kindle. I checked last night. Uh, so if you haven't read it, you have no excuse. I actually bought it again. I have it somewhere, but I don't know where. I may have given it away. So I bought it for 99 cents and I read, uh, probably a third of the book just to sort of, and it's a fantastic book. Yeah, the English is, well, 1930ish English, but other than that, it's a great book. Well, okay, so if you don't like a long book, this is pretty long. Uh, there's another book by J. Warner Wallace uh, published in 2014 entitled Alive. And that recounts how this man, who is a cold case police detective, who is an atheist, came to faith when he was 35 years old after examining the evidence of the resurrection. And this book is super short. It's almost too short. And it will take you only around 45 minutes to read. Um, It's available, by the way, on Kindle for $1.58. So the cheaper book is actually the better book. But if you, you know, you don't like long books, then go ahead and go with J. Warner Wallace's Alive. Okay. In other words, there's great evidence from the Gospels. And these uh, men actually both set out to prove the opposite, uh, and came around to believing in the accounts of the resurrection. Third, the disciples changed from frightened to bold after the resurrection. This is, to me, supremely important. The disciples changed from frightened to bold after the resurrection. At the crucifixion, the disciples were a mess, Weren't they a scared bunch? They all fled the scene. Peter, Peter, of course, said, oh, I won't deny you. Yeah, he even denied that he knew the Lord. When we see them together again that first Easter Sunday night, oh, they're rejoicing, right? No, they're scared to death. John twenty nineteen says that all the doors were shut where the disciples were gathered for fear of the Jews. They were still a scared bunch before Jesus appeared to them all. What changed them from this scared bunch to boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Christ at Pentecost just 50 days later? As Acts 2 tells us, Peter gave a sermon that was so strong that 3,000 people were saved. What changed Peter from this scared disciple who denied that he even knew Jesus to a bold apostle who proclaimed Jesus' death and resurrection openly? This can only be explained by the fact that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead. Why would these men risk their lives for a lie or a hoax? Fourth, and many of you who know me know I was going to get to this point, Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures predicted both Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus and the Old Testament scriptures predicted both Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection numerous times before it happened. Matthew 16, 21 says, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised the third day. Matthew 17, 22 and 23, the same thing. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. Matthew twenty, eighteen and nineteen. Jesus going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests, of the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him to the Gentiles, to mock and to scourge, and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. So it shouldn't have surprised the disciples because Jesus predicted it often, not only his death, but also his resurrection three days later. Similarly, the Old Testament scriptures predicted Jesus' death and resurrection 700 to 1,400 years earlier. A few of you are uh, tuned in by means of Zoom to my Miles Bible class, which is on Tuesday mornings. We just finished Jeremiah. This is a a commercial message here, um, a very small commercial message. In the last three Tuesdays, and you can get the um, the recordings on Dropbox. What we looked at were the uh, the prophecies of Christ's suffering and death in the Old Testament. We somehow tried to do that in three Sunday, uh, three uh, Tuesdays. That was probably a mistake, my mistake as usual. So we raced through it. But uh, there are so many uh, prophecies. The feasts, of course, I didn't even discuss the feasts in, in my uh, Tuesday class. The feast prescribed in Leviticus 23 spoke of a Passover when a lamb was killed for the people's redemption and first fruits 3 days later. It's no accident that Jesus was crucified at Passover as the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world as John 1:29 puts it, and he rose again 3 days later on the feast of first fruits. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 specifically predicts the Messiah's death for our sins and his resurrection. Isaiah 53, uh, 5 and 6. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. And then verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Isaiah wrote this 700 years before the birth and death of Christ. And uh, hopefully maybe some of you may remember that I preached on this incredible passage here at Faith uh, two years ago. This passage so clearly points to Jesus that in the Jewish readings in the synagogue, uh, these are their prepared readings, the rabbis skipped from Isaiah 52.12 to 54.1. Why? Well, they don't want somebody asking, well, what in the world? is This sure sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? They don't want those questions. They just skip the, the chapter altogether. And David in Psalm 22 speaks of the suffering and death of the Messiah, uh, speaking of his hands and feet being pierced in Psalm 22:16, 16, a clear res- reference to the crucifixion. And speaking of casting lots for his clothing in verse eighteen, which happened at the cross as Matthew twenty-seven thirty-five describes, Jesus himself quotes from the first verse of Psalm twenty-two when he's on the cross, as Matthew twenty-seven forty-six records. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabatani?" That is, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And, and remember that David wrote Psalm 22 a thousand years before the birth of Christ. The important witness of these Old Testament scriptures is specifically mentioned by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:3 and 4. And I'm going to base most of the rest of my points in this message on 1 Corinthians 15, so you may want to turn there in uh, the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. The death and resurrection of Jesus was predicted not only by Jesus himself, but over a thousand years earlier in the Old Testament by David, by Isaiah, by Daniel, by Zechariah, and we better add, in light of today's scripture And also by Ezekiel, right? Those dry bones in Ezekiel 37, we better not forget them. Well, fifth after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many different groups of people at many different times. After his resurrection, Jesus appeared to many different groups of people at many different times. He appeared, first of all, to Mary Magdalene, John 20, verse 1, then to Peter, then to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, one of the most humorous uh, (laughs) accounts in Scripture, I think, that uh, that that there could ever be. I just absolutely love uh, Luke uh, 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, then to the 11 on that uh, uh, Easter Sunday evening. And according to Luke 24, 43, he even ate some fish while he was with them, proving that he had a real body and he wasn't just a spirit. But uh, dear Thomas wasn't with them at that time, if you remember. And he said, John 20, verse 25, unless I see what in his hands, the print of the nails and put my finger in the print of uh, 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 the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And I've got to say, as a disciple, I always relate to Thomas. I would have been one of those. I want to see the evidence. That's what Thomas did. I don't, you know, poor Thomas. He's maligned all through scripture. I really appreciate it. He wasn't easily convinced. So what happened? Well, uh, as you know, eight days later, Jesus appeared again, showed Thomas his hands, and Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God. Thomas wasn't some easily swayed person. He needed solid evidence, so Jesus graciously gave it to him. And then Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 and 6, that Jesus was seen by Cephas, that is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have died. Now, maybe some could argue that a few disciples just thought that Jesus appeared to them. I'll never forget my high school world history history, class where the class was made up of 90% Jewish students. And the teacher told us authoritatively that Jesus was a charlatan and all of his disciples were schizophrenics. Now, I was only 14 years old at the time. And in those days, you didn't really question the teacher the way maybe (laughs) people do today. But as probably the only Christian in the class, I challenged him on that point, And I still remember he had no evidence to back up his claim. And by the way, my grades went from an A to a D until my parents complained. And then all of a sudden they went back to an A again. It was a very interesting period of time. Uh, so a little bit of persecution at age 14 because this guy said that You know, Jesus was a charlatan. The disciples, they were a bunch of schizophrenics. They don't look like schizophrenics if you actually read the gospel accounts. Uh, They didn't imagine Jesus appearing. Jesus appeared many times during the 40 days before his ascension to heaven, and he appeared to 500 people at once. And most of these people, Paul says, when he writes 1 Corinthians, are still alive, so you can check with them. Jesus' resurrection actually happened, and it's an historical fact based on solid evidence, not just some nice story that some people made up after the fact. Well, that's part one of the message, the first question. The second question, what difference does it make that Christ's resurrection actually happened? That second question, I think, is absolutely vital. What difference does it make that Christ's resurrection actually happened? It makes all the difference in the world. And there's where I'd like us to continue briefly looking at portions of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul answers that very question. Paul first answers this question negatively in verses 12 to 19, and then positively In verses 20 to 58, he says, First, uh, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then four things are true. If Christ was not raised from the dead, then four things are true. First, Paul says in verse 14 that our preaching is empty or in vain. All of our preaching would be without any purpose, there would be no message to preach. Sadly, in some churches, some preachers don't actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that they still preach some message from their pulpits. I have no idea why anyone would want to do that. Uh, I'd rather, you know, go see the Orioles game this afternoon or go play golf or something rather than preach something that I didn't believe. I don't get that. Uh, Paul says if Christ's resurrection didn't actually happen, there would be no message to preach. There is no Christian message without Christ's resurrection. Second, Paul says in verse 15 that if the resurrection didn't happen, then the apostles would all be liars. The apostles would all be liars. They would be false witnesses since they claimed that God raised up Jesus, but he didn't. And if they were false witnesses about this, then nothing of the rest of their teaching could be trusted either. Third, Paul says in verse uh, both uh, verse uh, 14 and verse 17, that if Christ was not raised, then our faith is in vain since we are yet in our sins. Our faith is in vain since we are yet in our sins. Earlier in chapter 15, uh, Paul beautifully expressed the heart of the gospel, as we already read, in verses 3 and 4. We read them once, but let me read them again. (laughs) For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins in our place on the cross. But the resurrection is God's testimony and seal that Christ's sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. According to Romans 4 verse 25, it is Christ's death and resurrection that cause us to be be declared righteous in God's sight. If Christ was not raised, then the sacrifice of Christ would not have taken away our sins because the resurrection is is indeed the supreme evidence that his sacrifice was accepted. And finally, Paul says in verse 19, If Christ is not raised, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. <laughs> if we, in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. He explains further in verses 30 to 32 that we would be most miserable because we're giving up the pleasures of this life now and even suffering persecution sometimes in order to preach the gospel. Well, if Christ isn't risen and there's no afterlife, then why not, as Paul says in verse 32, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Why not just live life to the fullest now? In my own case, graduating from Princeton University, like many of my fellow graduates, I could have pursued, uh, chosen to pursue a career that would make a lot of money and enjoy many of the luxuries of this life. But as a young 20-year-old, I decided instead that I wanted to give my life to, the, to serve the Lord and to tell people about him rather than simply making a lot of money. Now, my parents originally, I still remember the day that I told them about this, and they were not very happy at all with my decision because I was on the pre-med track, and they figured I'd make a good living as a doctor. Thankfully, they did eventually come on board with my decision. Well, that was 50 years ago, and may I say that I've never regretted that decision even for a moment. But if Christ were not raised, <laughs> if the resurrection didn't happen, if this life is all that there is, then what a stupid decision I would have made. Same is true, of course, for countless uh, missionaries and others. And thinking of Valerie uh, Gray, who uh, you, you folks know so well here, and she, she and so many others have dedicated... Uh, their lives, to serving other people, to make the gospel known to those around. What a foolish thing to do if Christ is not raised. But if he is raised, there's nothing better that one can do with one's life. But since Christ did indeed rise from the dead, Paul next gives us three positive reasons why it matters. Look at this contrast between verses 19 and 20. It's one of my most favorite contrasts in the whole of scriptures. Verse 19 says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But, verse 20 says, one of the greatest buts in the whole Bible, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul says in verses 20 to 22 that since Christ rose from the dead, we who are believers in Christ will also rise from the dead. That's the first result that I see. We who are believers in Christ will also rise from the dead. We'll have a new resurrection body just like his glorious body, according to Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21, where Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. We have our citizenship not on earth, but in heaven. You know, when people die, some folks make a big deal about the body they bury buy an expensive casket and so on and so forth. And I realize that we can have disagreements on this point. But for me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. My body is a mess now, and it's going to get worse and worse. Uh, and when it's dead, it's going to get even worse. So why would anyone want to preserve my dead body? I don't get it. As Christians, we're going to have a new resurrection body. We do believe that, right? Uh, And Paul explains in most of the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 that this new resurrection body will be immortal and incorruptible. How do we know this? Because that's what Christ's resurrection body was like, and ours is patterned after his. So this life is not all that there is. The wrongs that you and I suffer here will be made right in the next life when you and I, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, We'll have new resurrection bodies. This is the basis of our hope. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you is that the hope that you want i hope it is or do you hope to get rich here on earth and then die where you can take nothing none of those riches with you well paul puts this in another way in 1 corinthians 15:26 And then in verses 54 to 57, he says that because Christ is raised from the dead, death itself is swallowed up in victory. Death itself is swallowed up in victory. He explains that the sting of death is sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, death entered the world. But now because of Christ's resurrection, he has paid the price for our sin so that there will be no more death. Quoting from Isaiah 25, verse 8, Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-four that death is swallowed up in victory. Death itself will be defeated. And you and I, if we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, will have eternal life. That means that you and I don't need to fear death, since this life is not the end of it all. I don't know about you, but over the past two years, uh, at least 20 people I've known well uh, have died. Just yesterday, I visited a 97-year-old man in the hospital who's near death. Two and a half weeks ago, uh, I visited a former member of my Sunday school class in the hospital, and though she was near death, she was rejoicing with me. And she really was not sad at all because she knew that death death was not the end and she would be with Jesus in heaven and she'd see her beloved husband Earl, who was also a strong believer. She died just two days ago on Good Friday. Yes, death is a horrible thing to be sure. But for the believer, Jesus' resurrection proves that he has conquered death. The last two lines of John Donne's beautiful sonnet, Death Be Not Proud, written over 400 years ago, sums up this point nicely. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more, death thou shalt die. Finally, Paul concludes that because Christ is raised from the dead, you and I should be abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. You and I should be abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor is not in vain. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Many people work hard in this life, but their work really accomplishes very little. They work hard to earn money, but as I've said before, they can't take that money with them to the grave. But you and I know that because of the resurrection of Christ, all that we do for the Lord will be useful and it will be profitable. So Paul's concluding exhortation, and mine to you as well, is that we should never grow tired of doing the Lord's work, of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us, of demonstrating the Lord's love and kindness and compassion to those around us because we know that our labor is not in vain. Did the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually happen? The evidence is incontrovertible that it did. Does it make any difference? It makes all the difference in the world you're here this morning and you've never acknowledged your sinfulness and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then I would urge you to do it today. Don't put it off because we don't, no one knows whether we're going to have tomorrow or not. Do it today. There is no more important decision that you can make than this. For those of us who have accepted Jesus as our Savior, that he died on the cross for our sins, it means that we will have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, new resurrection bodies in the life to come, and a purpose in our lives now to serve the Lord with all of our being. Hallelujah. Christ is risen indeed. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father, for these uh, Old Testament prophecies of Christ's death and resurrection. We thank you for the clear uh, testimonies in each of the Gospels of Christ's prediction of his death and his resurrection three days later. Father, I thank you that uh, we don't simply uh, believe and that faith is somehow a kind of leap in the dark but it's based on the evidence of scripture, the evidence of your word, and even the evidence of all creation, which demonstrates death and resurrection, Lord, uh, even with the spring flowers, Lord, the things that we see all around us. And this should not surprise us because you are the one that uh, authored it all, all of creation, everything, pointing to what Jesus Christ has done on the cross I pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that's never trusted in Christ as their Savior, that they would do it today, and repenting of your sins, Lord, and and, uh, that that you would then, uh, they would come to Christ and trust in Christ as their Savior and be uh, saved by you, Lord, and they would be assured of having eternal life and forgiveness of sins. What a joy that is, the greatest treasure of all. For the rest of us, Lord, please, I pray, help us to be urgent in our love for you and in our um, desire to be lights in this world of darkness, to uh, point people to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his life, to his death, and above all, to his resurrection. Help us, Lord, to manifest that light even in our own lives. We realize our own sin, our own failings, and all of the rest. But help us, Lord, as new creations to demonstrate that love of Christ even in our own lives to others. We pray that you would help us to do this and help us to go forward even, with even more resolve than ever before. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.